Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today we are in our study of the seven churches of Revelation, and today we come to the all-important church in Smyrna. Now, I try to give you some fascinating history behind the city of Smyrna and why Christ has the specific language that he says to this suffering church. We're going to see that Smyrna was one of the two, only two churches out of the seven that Christ did not have a rebuke for. And we're going to see why today. You know, Christ had a very special connection to the suffering Christians of Smyrna, and we're going to uncover that, and we're just going to unpack these verses phrase for phrase, in some cases word for word. I'm so glad you're joining me today on Awakened Radio. with me today to Revelation chapter 2. Thank you to our team today. That was wonderful. Revelation chapter 2. If uh, you have missed the first part of this series on the seven churches of Revelation, we began two weeks ago with walking through the first chapter of Revelation. We talked about what the purpose of the book is. We saw that the purpose of the book is the unveiling It is the revealing of who Jesus Christ is. It's not about the Antichrist or Mark of the Beast or Tribulation period or all of those uh, fascinating and can seem even mysterious things. The book has one primary purpose, the unveiling, the revealing of the lordship and the sovereignty of our Savior, Jesus If you read Revelation with that view, then the book begins to make much more sense. Now, we saw in chapter 1 this beautiful description of Christ. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the golden candlesticks. We saw that he had white hair as the snow as wool. We saw that his eyes were a flame of fire. We saw that his voice was as roaring water. We saw that he had a white robe with a golden sash. We saw that out of his mouth was his double-edged sword. We saw that his feet was as varnished bronze. We saw beautiful descriptions of Christ. And today, when we get to chapter 2 with the church of Smyrna, We're going to see how this beautiful description of Christ, this beautiful portrait of Christ of chapter 1, each phrase is going to carry over in some way to each of the seven churches. Last week with Ephesus, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, we saw that he held the seven stars in his right hand, which as we are interpreting, we believe that means the pastor's. The messenger, the Greek word for angel there is messenger of God. We believe that that was to the pastor. Could it be to an actual angel? Yes, possible, but we believe it's to the pastor, the one who would give full account, full account before a holy God of how his church has been ran and operated. And so, as he said to the church of Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the golden candlesticks, what he's going to say to the church of Smyrna, if you'll look with me in verse number eight, this is where we begin. 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. The one who lived and died, but lives again. Oh, I love this. Today, what we're going to see is when it comes to the church of Smyrna, Jesus has not only a special word to say to them, but Jesus has a special connection to these Christians. Jesus has a very special connection to the church of Smyrna, and we're going to uncover that today. Now, if you remember last week, we said that the area that John is writing to, while there were many churches of the New Testament, I mean, there were churches everywhere, the church of Antioch, of Jerusalem, the Macedonian church, Thessalonica, and uh, Philippi, and Rome, and oh, there are just churches everywhere. John wrote that the leadership of Christ, only seven churches, meaning the number of completion. And it's a word that Jesus had to seven physical, literal congregations, but it's also a word throughout all of the church age, including us today. And we would be wise, verse 11, to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The Lord has something to say to you today. The Lord has something to say to me through the church of Smyrna. And I hope that you'll help me unpack this And I hope today we leave in awe, staggered, in wonder, in amazement at the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his precious church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last, he who lived and died lives again. What's Jesus saying to the church? Now let's learn a little bit about the city of Smyrna. Let's learn just a moment about how, how important the city is. Now remember last week we said the church of Ephesus, that was an incredibly important city. In this area of the world, in the ancient time, today it's modern day Turkey. It's what we would call the Middle East. In that day it was called Asia Minor. And Ephesus, we said last week, Ephesus was the capital city of Asia Minor. Perhaps the most important city, but Smyrna was just a step behind them. Smyrna was only 35 miles to the north of Ephesus. If you look at an ancient map of where these seven churches are located, this is an easy way to remember it. It's like writing a capital D. And where we are, we started in Ephesus. That would be the base of the capital D. Now we're going to go 35 miles north to a harbor city, a beautiful city the city of Smyrna. It was said that it was the most beautiful city of the ancient Asia Minor. It was, if you were a citizen of Smyrna in this day, you would have been a very proud, you would have been a very affluent citizen. They were fiercely loyal to Rome and to the emperor. They boasted of a large library. They boasted of a large stadium. They boasted of the greatest harbor of Asia Minor. They boasted of the largest theater of the Asia Minor. They also boasted that this was Homer, the blind poet, who is still read today. This was supposedly his birthplace. There were many things to be proud of in the city of Smyrna, and it was a very affluent. It was a wealthy place because their harbor was so wonderful Trade flowed in and trade flowed out, causing the city to become quite wealthy. But if you were a Christian in Smyrna, 
you lived a different story, a different narrative. Now notice what Jesus says to the affluent people of Smyrna. He says, the first, the last, the one who lived and died and lived again. Why did Jesus say that to Smyrna? Well, did you know that Smyrna had a slogan for their city? You know, it's not odd even in our day for cities to have slogans, right? Los Angeles, what what are they known for? The city of angels. Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Unfortunately, Las Vegas is known as sin, right? Well, this day, in, in, in this day that John is writing, Smyrna also had a city slogan. And their slogan was the city that was dead but is alive again. Now, why did the city have that slogan? Because for years, the city lied in ruins until a very important man in history named Alexander the Great came along. Alexander the Great had a dream where he said the gods told him to rebuild the city of Smyrna. He left one of his most important generals behind to rebuild the city. And when we pick up in history, in John's day, as John writes the book of Revelation, it is a mighty and a wealthy and a rebuilt city. Thus, they were the city that was dead, but was alive again. But that's not necessarily the connection Jesus had to these people. The name Smyrna comes from what was their greatest and most important export. It was used and highly prized throughout the ancient time, especially the time of Christ. And it was a fragrance named myrrh. And if you've read much of Jesus, of his life through the Gospels, You see myrrh attached to Jesus a great deal. As a matter of fact, when he was born, what did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and what? Myrrh. And you know what myrrh was used for? It was used for medicine. It actually has a very bitter taste, and that's where the name myrrh, it means bitter. Smyrna has to do with bitterness, has to do with suffering. They would use it as a medicine, and and it comes from this small thorny bush. And when you cut into the bush, what comes out of it is an oily-like substance. Um, People compare it to car oil. You've all seen car oil. Myrrh is like, it's the substance like car oil with a bitter taste. It was used in medicine for healing. It was used in death. It was used as perfume for the living. And it was used to anoint the fragrance of a body of someone who died. When Jesus was on the cross, what did they offer him? Myrrh. When Jesus died and was in the tomb, what did the ladies bring to his tomb? Myrrh. Jesus was associated with myrrh. He was associated with bitterness. He was associated with the bitter taste of death, of suffering. And I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus says to these precious people who are suffering in Smyrna. And it's exactly what Jesus would say to you today. Those of you who are facing sorrow. Those of you who are facing loss. Those of you who are facing heaviness of heart. Those of you who are facing an uncertain future. 
Those of you who have questions about what tomorrow holds in your life or in your family, I think this is exactly what Jesus would say to you, his precious people today. Notice verse number nine. This is beautiful scripture and we just want to unfold it. First of all, Jesus said, I know your tribulation. Now, if you're someone that you mark in your Bible or you take notes, I can't encourage you enough to note some of this because we're going to dive deep into these verses. You know, some of you are going to go to the beach this summer and you go to the beach and certainly it's beautiful. Certainly it's nice on the surface. But how many of you know that if you dive down into the ocean, there is another level of creation, right? And that's what I want to do today. I want to go beneath the surface. I want us to dive into this text, and I want us to see the beauty of what Jesus is saying to these precious people. Number one, if you want to note this, I want you to note how Jesus says, I know your tribulation. This word know means so much to me because it is not an intellectual knowledge. It is not just simple facts. You know, as I studied for today's sermon and those of you who know me and my story, you know I'm completely blind. I cannot see a Bible. I cannot see any notes. I cannot write something down and try to remember it. Everything that I say, everything that I preach, it's got to come not just out of my intellect. It's got to come out of my spirit. And I think what Jesus is saying here, listen to this, the word know doesn't just mean an intellectual knowledge. It doesn't just mean facts about someone or facts about a circumstance or facts about maybe some trouble that someone's going through. The actual word here in the Greek means to know by experience. Jesus is telling these suffering Christians This myrrh, this bitter suffering, this Smyrna, people of Smyrna. He's saying, I know by experience what you are walking through. I know by experience what you are suffering. Notice what he says next. He calls it tribulation. Do you know what the word is in the Greek for tribulation here? It literally means pressure. The word picture is of taking a large rock and it's fitting on your chest and you are feeling crushed by the weight of the pressure. And Jesus is saying to these precious people, I see what's happening to you. I know the weight you're under. I know the pressure you're facing. I see what's happening. I know not just with an intellect. I know by experience what you are walking through. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, Satan tried to discourage me. Is he not a liar today? Come on now, who's with me today? He's a liar, isn't he? He's a liar. And he came, he put this thought in my mind, and he tried to discourage me. Listen how crazy this is. I was sitting there one evening and just thinking and praying, and all of a sudden, Satan just puts his thought in my mind. God doesn't know what you're going through, Chad. How can God know? All God is is light. God has no idea what it is to be blind. God has no idea what it is to see utter darkness. All he is is light. Isn't that just like him to twist the word of God? What is? I feel my blood pressure rising. Excuse me. I'm getting angry just thinking about it. And he tried to discourage me. 
and say, God doesn't know. God doesn't understand. How can he? All he sees is light. How can God not see? So how can he know what you're experiencing? Let me tell you, this verse alone refutes that, amen? He says, I know the pressure you're under. And let me tell you what the Lord said. The Lord said, Chad, don't you doubt for a second. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and he sees everything you see, amen? <laughs> My brother Jeff reminded me this morning. You know, you want to know what's crazy? About 2008, I purchased a painting of blind Bartimaeus being healed, and it's hanging right there to your left. How crazy is that, that for years before I went blind, God puts a picture of blind Bartimaeus being healed, amen? Don't tell me God doesn't know what he's doing, amen? He knows exactly what he's doing. And Satan would come and he would lie. And he would say, God doesn't know. God doesn't understand. And let me tell you, he'll lie to you. And he'll tell you that God's abandoned you. He'll tell you that God isn't listening to your prayers. He'll tell you that God's not interested or that God is paying attention to everyone else except you. I'm telling you, my friends, this verse proves him to be a liar. Christ knows by experience the pressures that you and I face. He knows by experience what we're walking through. And then notice what he says. And your poverty. The word poverty here. Note this, while tribulation means pressure, the word poverty here means literally penniless, abject poverty, penniless. What's going on in the city of Smyrna? See, you have to understand, they were fiercely loyal to Rome and the emperor. And in this day that John is writing to the church, Every year in Smyrna, it was required for your family to go publicly and offer incense. And this is what you had to say. See, we can't even fathom this living in America. We cannot even fathom it. Your, you and your family would have to offer incense to the emperor of Rome. And here's what you would have to say. Caesar is Lord. And to not do so was a capital offense. What would you do? And so you can imagine the pressure these people are under. You can imagine the poverty they're in. If you sell goods, who's going to buy from you if you don't give worship to the emperor? Who's going to support your business? Who's going to hire you? Who's going to help you advance? How are you going to get a good job in a city that scorns Christ followers? You know, we literally have friends throughout the Middle East and Southeast Asia and Africa, places where they are persecuted for their faith. We have pastors who will go get an apartment. In that part of the world, it's called a flat. And they'll rent a flat. And a short time later, a Muslim landlord will come to them and say, no, you're a Christian, you have to go. Churches will try to find a, a place to rent as a church and Muslims will refuse it. They live in a very different world, a very different society where the pressure is far greater than it is here. While our culture is growing more hostile to Christianity, we see that. 
It still isn't anything like what much of the world suffers. And in this culture that John's writing to, these believers were penniless because they couldn't work good jobs and they couldn't sell goods and they couldn't, not in a city that demanded emperor worship. And that's their plight. That's where they are. Now notice next what he says. And the slander, the slander. I'm going to come back to the poverty in a second, but notice the slander. See, again, this goes back to understanding the culture in which they lived. They would twist what Christians believed. In the Roman world, family was paramount. You go against family, ultimate disgrace. Well, see, in the church, not only do we love our immediate family, but see, we're family, right? We are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And in the Roman world, when the church would call one another brothers and sisters, they scorned that. They would twist it and say, oh, you don't love your family. Oh, you walk away from your family. You don't love, you care nothing about your family because you choose this Christian family. They would take Holy Communion where we observe the sacrifice of Jesus. We honor the brokenness of his body. We honor the shed blood with bread and juice. We honor this as the sacrifice of the Lord. Well, in the Roman world, they would twist that and they would call Christians cannibals. They would say, you're eating the flesh of Christ. You're, eating, you're drinking the blood. They would call it cannibalism and they would just twist and they would slander Christians and they would make them outcasts and and, and, and persecute them. And while Jesus says, I see the pressure that you're under, tribulation. I see the persecution you're under, the slander. He then says, I see your poverty. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, but you are rich. But you are rich. Do you see your life? Do you see your trials? Do you see your plight? Do you see your circumstance? Do you see your hardships from the perspective of Jesus? If you could see from his perspective, could it be that you would see your life different? Could it be that you would see your lot in life different? You would see your circumstance? You would see your trial? Could it be that you would see things different? If you would see through his eyes, he says, you're rich. I'll never forget being in Cairo, Egypt one time. And I visited a church right along the Nile River that was so poor, my friends. They could not afford paint on the walls. They couldn't afford furniture. I went into the pastor's office and the pastor didn't have any furniture. And I thought of my office. You walk into my office and it's beautiful, at least well, to me, you may not like it, but I love it. And I'm so comfortable in my office. And this pastor didn't even have a desk. He didn't have anything. And I'm walking around this church, and I had eyesight at that time. And I'm walking around what is one of the poorest churches I've ever been in. And the Holy Spirit's telling me, oh, but Chad, they're so rich. You just don't know how rich they are. 
I was in a church in Malawi, Africa some years ago where all they had was thatched sides and a thatched roof. And, and literally, we sat in the clay dirt singing worship to Jesus and studying his word together. Friends, they have nothing, but they are so rich. Do you see your life from his perspective? He notes their pressure. He notes their poverty. He notes their persecution. Look with me at verse number 10. Watch what he's going to say. What would you say to someone who is suffering, who's having a very difficult time, who is in sorrow? You know, we've all been in those times when we don't know what to say, right? We've all been with loved ones. We've all been with friends, with church family, where we don't know what to say. Well, Jesus knew what to say. And look what he tells his church. Look what precious words. Do not fear. (laughs) Isn't that what Jesus told John in chapter 1 when he fell as a dead man and worshipped him? He put his right hand on him and said, do not fear. What did we say a couple of weeks ago? Jesus takes our fears so serious. He doesn't brush them aside. He doesn't say, well, just buck up, grow up, get over it. Jesus doesn't treat our fears that way. You know what he does? He encourages us. (laughs) And you know what the word encourage means? In courage. When you encourage someone, you know what you do? You give them courage to go forward. And in this case, when Jesus tells these precious people, do not fear, you know what he's doing? He's giving them courage to face what lies ahead. Are you accepting the encouragement of the Lord? Are you listening to everybody else? Are you listening to all the clutter? Are you listening to all the complaints? Are you listening to, oh, oh, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. I think you should, uh, you know, people will tell you all kinds of things. No, my friends, listen, verse 11, hear what the Spirit says to the church. And when you listen to the precious Holy Spirit, you know what he gives us, church? He gives us encouragement. He encourages us. He gives us courage to go forward. He says, do not fear. And then he says, for the devil is about to throw some of you into prison for 10 days. Now, why 10 days? Well, number one, this represents a short period of time. Jesus is telling them this will be a short period of time. But listen to what history tells us about what I believe is this church age in Smyrna. Listen to what it tells us. There'll be 10, there were exactly 10 waves of persecution under the Roman government. And Jesus is warning his church. He is preparing his people. And he says, be faithful even unto death. And listen to what he says. Be faithful unto death and you will be given what? A crown of life. See, what was mightily important in the city of Smyrna were the Olympic Games. It was all tied to this Asia Minor province. The Olympic Games were such a big deal, especially in this time period. Every Christian hearing the words of Jesus, they would have understood 
what he meant by the crown of life. You don't, you don't want those Olympic winners. You don't want those athletes would win in the Olympic Games in this day in Asia Minor. They would have gotten that evergreen wreath around their heads, that evergreen wreath. And you know what Jesus is telling his people? Be faithful even unto death and you'll receive the crown of life. This is what James talked about. One of the five crowns that Christians can win out of the Bible, the crown of life. You know, as I said, I am of the persuasion that the angels, Christ held the seven stars, which meant the angels, which I believe is the pastor of the church. I believe that means the pastor. It could literally mean an angel, but I think it's pastor. And do you know who the most famous pastor of Smyrna was? Now listen to this. Listen to the precision of how I believe Scripture lines up. The most famous pastor of Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp. If you don't know anything about Bishop Polycarp, it's worth you doing some research on. Polycarp was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. History tells us John would have died around 90 AD and in 151 AD, 50, 60 years after the book of Revelation was written. In 151 AD, Polycarp was arrested by the Roman government in Smyrna. They figured if we're going to stop the explosive growth of the church, we should take out its leader. Two weeks prior to Polycarp being arrested, he had a dream that his pillow was on fire. And he believed in the middle of the night, God warned him that he would be burned at the stake. Now remember what Jesus said, right, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. I believe that was to Polycarp. I believe it fits this time of history, this period of history. And what did Jesus tell this church? Be faithful even unto death. You are about to suffer. They arrested Polycarp. He was 86 years old. And when the Roman soldiers came to his home to arrest him, do you know how Polycarp responded? Rather than resisting them, rather than running away or fleeing, he offered them a meal. And after he fed the men who would take him to his death, Polycarp had one request. He requested that he might go to his room and spend one hour in prayer with the Savior. And that's what he did. When they brought him to the stadium, remember they had a large stadium, the largest theater, a large library, a large port. When they brought him before this massive crowd and before the authorities of Smyrna, They told him to do one thing and he would live. They said, say Caesar is Lord. This 86-year-old man refused. They said, say that Caesar is Lord or you will be burned at the stake. And what did Jesus say? Be faithful even unto death and you'll be given the crown of life. And Polycarp history records He said, in 86 years, Christ has done me no harm. How can I do this to my Savior now? 
And listen to what this 86-year-old man, full of Holy Spirit backbone, listen to what he told this stadium of people and the authorities. He said, you threaten me with fire that is only temporary, but you are ignorant of the eternal fire that awaits you. That's what that 86-year-old man said. They took him and they strapped him to the stake and they lit the fire underneath him. And as the fire grew, do you know what it did? A gust of wind kept it away from his body. The fire would not touch this man of God. The flame would not even kindle upon him. It would not even touch his body. And they took a spear and they ran him through. And that's how the 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, that's how he died. And that's how he received his crown of life that he is enjoying to this day. Amen? What's Jesus saying to us today? Verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Friends, Jesus knows what you're facing. Now, you and I may not be facing physical threats. We may not be facing the threat of losing our property. We may not be facing imprisonment. We may not be facing the loss of life. But let me assure you, spiritual warfare is still spiritual warfare, right? Don't minimize what you're facing. Don't minimize what you're suffering. Satan would come and he would try to harm you. He would try to hurt you. He would try to lie to you. He would try to deceive you. He would try to make you think that God is a thousand miles from you. But I'm telling you what God wants to say to you today, what God wants to say to this blind pastor today is God knows exactly what you and I face. Every pressure, every trial, every heartache, every sorrow, every test, God knows it all. Amen. And he has grace to face it. And what he would say to you is what he would say to Smyrna. And it's what he would say to me. Do not fear what lies ahead. Do not fear what you're facing now. Do not fear what's down the road, what's ahead of the curve. Do not fear it. Because we have an amazing promise from an amazing God who knows exactly what we face. Now lastly, notice what he says. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, is this physical hearing? Absolutely not. This is an inward hearing, an effectual hearing, a spiritual kind of hearing. And then notice what he says. To the one who conquers... He will not be hurt by the second death. Oh, this is fascinating. Do you know the word not? In the Greek language, when John wrote the words of Jesus, and he said, will not be harmed. Do you know it is the strongest 
negative expression in all of the Greek language. In other words, it would be like us in our English language making it capital letters with explanation points, with parentheses, with an asterisk, underlined in italics. You cannot emphasize it strongly enough. You will not be hurt by the second death. What words to Christians who are facing death? What words to Christians who didn't know what their future held? Is that not beautiful to you? And what is the second death? Well, we studied this a few weeks ago when we talked about the great white throne. About a month ago, we studied this. What is the second death? What did we say? It's so, been so beautifully said. If you're born once, only a physical, natural birth, that of your mother's womb. If you're born once, you're going to die twice. You'll die the physical death that we all will die. But you'll die a spiritual death where you'll be forever separated from a loving and a holy God. But those who are born twice. <laughs> Didn't Jesus tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. Those who are born twice, you're born of your mother, you're born of your physical birth, but then your soul is born again. Your sins are washed in the blood of Jesus. Your sins are forever, for eternity forgiven. Friends will only die once. And that day that our soul is separated from our body, that is the only death we will ever face. And you know what the Bible says about that death? Christ abolished it. It was the final enemy, the last to be defeated. And now Christians can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? will only die once when D.L. Moody, that great evangelist and pastor of the 1800s, when he died, you know what his last words were? If this is death, then it is sweet. Are you born again? Will you never, ever be harmed by the second death? If that's the case, then friends, what is there to fear? in this life what are you afraid of right now what are you afraid of tomorrow what are you afraid of in the months ahead what is there to fear when you don't have to fear the second death do you know what Jesus is telling us live for eternity don't live for this world be faithful unto death and you'll receive the crown of life don't fear anything in your life don't fear the pressure don't fear any poverty. Don't fear any persecution. Don't fear slander. Don't fear anything. Because the supreme, the sovereign, the risen Lord is the first and the last. He is Alpha and Omega. He lived and he died and he lives and he lives according to Hebrews to make intercession for us. He ever liveth to make intercession on our behalf. So what are you afraid of today? What are you facing today that you don't know if you'll get through it? Why don't you bow your heads today with your eyes closed, your head bowed? 
I don't know what you're facing. But I know this. I know Satan's probably lying to you just like he tried to lie to me. He's probably telling you God doesn't understand just like he told me. But I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, Christ does know. (laughs) And he knows by experience. And he sees your pressure. Today, if you need to come and pray and lay some pressure down, if you need to come and pray and lay some sorrow down, if you need to come and pray and get some encouragement and get courage to take the next steps and get courage to walk by faith and not by sight, why don't you slip out of your seat right now and why don't you come to this altar? You can kneel, you can stand. You can sit on this platform. You can stand by the wall. You can get on your knees. You can do whatever you need to do, whatever's comfortable. You come. Why don't you slip out and come right now? We have people who want to pray with you. And why don't you come? And why don't you get the encouragement that Jesus wants to give you today? Get the encouragement that he can give you. And then today, if you don't know the Lord, if you've only been born once, and you've never been born again. Friends, the second death awaits you. The lake of fire awaits you. The great white throne judgment awaits you. But see, Christ took that. He took that. The judgment that is reserved for you, he absorbed. And he took on your behalf. The question is, will judgment fall on you? Or will you allow it to fall on Jesus? If you're here today and you've never been born again, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And you know, being born again is not simply praying a prayer. Being born again is repenting of your sin and saying, Jesus, take my judgment. Take my punishment. If today you've never been born again, I'm not asking, have you had religion? Have you been baptized? Have you done the church thing? That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, have you been born again that Jesus has changed your nature and forgiven your sins? If not, I want you to pray with me right now. I want you to bow your head. I want you to pray with me. In your heart, just pray, Jesus, Rescue me today. Rescue me, Jesus. Rescue me from my sin. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me today, Lord God, of all sin. And I make you my Lord and Savior. I will follow you all the days of my life. Take my judgment and take my life and use it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. Praise God.